I think it's true that uh, we do love power versus powerlessness, or we love uh, strength over weakness. We, we love people that have kind of a can-do attitude, that they can really do anything they put their mind to. I mean, we often hear that as a, as a kid. I remember my dad saying, if you just put your mind to it, you can do anything. And it uh, <clears throat> didn't take me long to figure out that wasn't true, actually. But, but, but we have that attitude, particularly in America. We think that, well, we can do this. We can put a man on the moon. We can do this. We can do whatever we really try to do. And I was thinking about that. Is that really true, and is it really helpful? Is it true that we can do anything? And we haven't done anything about stopping death. We can't seem to stop nations from invading nations. Uh, We we have trouble um, getting people to stop hating and abusing one another. We can't even change the weather. We can't even cure the common cold. Is it really wrong to think that there's value in weakness and desperation? I think the text is going to lead us to see an irony here in that weakness and desperation are actually very, very good things. We don't embrace those easily in this culture. But in this day of miracles, so Jesus has this one day, four great miracles, one after another. And Matthew is trying to hold Jesus up as this Messiah, right? He's a king. He's bringing a kingdom. He has all power and authority. But you're going to see in Jesus this beautiful mixture of might and mercy, strength and softness, this tenacity and yet tenderness. You're going to see a beautiful picture of Christ, and he's going to bid us to come. But we have to come desperate. We have to come weak. We have to come needy. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. And I just want to look at these two facets of Christ. Remember, Matthew is painting a portrait. The Gospels aren't pictures where where there's super-duper clarity and detail, but they're portraits. They're portraits describing the beauty and the power of Christ. So we'll look at Matthew 9, and I'm going to read 18 all the way to 34. 18 to 34. Okay, while he was saying these things to them, If you remember, he's at the feast uh, at Matthew's house, dealing with the disciples of John. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and, seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all the district. And they were going away, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. 
And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So you, you have this picture, this kind of corresponding picture of Jesus being really powerful, but really compassionate and gentle and kind. And, and I think you, you see it right off the bat. He's at this feast with Matthew, dealing with the disciples of John, and, and this, this man interrupts him, interrupts the party, breaks into the party, and says, you've got to come, my daughter's died. Now, the other gospel writers tell us actually that the daughter was at the point of death, that she was very near death. Now, Matthew, as you've seen over these chapters, continues to abbreviate all of his stories. And we're going to find out in the other Gospels that while on the way, the daughter did die, report was given to Jesus, but they went anyways. So Matthew's just compressing it for us. But this, this ruler, we know from Mark and John, that this ruler was a ruler of a synagogue. He was a big man. He was a high and important and influential man. And you see him, even though high and mighty and strong and affluent, he's impotent to deal with this issue. This man is desperate. I mean, his daughter, his only daughter, Mark tells us, of 12 years of age, has died. And he's appealing to Jesus. He's begging Jesus to come. What does Jesus do? He gets up and goes. And he follows this man to the house. Now, when he gets to the house, I want to explain this. When he gets to the house, there are these mourners there. I know it's hard for us to understand, but in this time, it was encouraged, if you had the money, to pay to have mourners come and weep with you. It seems goofy to us. It seems very plastic and, and superficial, but they did. They, they were in the Jewish writings. If you had the money, you were to pay mourners to come and, and kind of grieve with you over your loss. Well, when Jesus sees him, of course, he says, you can get on your way because she's asleep. She's not dead. Now, now of course, Jesus wasn't confused about her physical condition. Jesus knew that she had died, but to Jesus, death, though real, was not final. And so he sends him out. He goes into this chamber of death. And you can imagine, if you've ever been with a person who has died, it's extremely silent. It's still, you know, there's no life. It's, it's just, it's there. And he goes in there, he takes her by the hand. He just says, Talitha kum. He just says, little girl, get up. She gets up. Just gets up. To Jesus, raising the dead is like you as a, as a young mother waking up your child. That, that's all it is to Jesus. Get up, and she gets up. Death has to loosen its grip to anyone that Jesus calls. We saw that in John 11 with Lazarus. Come forth, Lazarus. And he comes out. He has to. Everything obeys the word of God. You see this power over death. But not just power over death. It was on the way to show this power. What does he find? This woman with a hemorrhage comes up to him. I just want to go through these miracles with you to show this amazing power of Christ. I think we, we lose sight of it when it's on the page, and hopefully it may, it may become a little more real to you as I explain it. But this woman with a hemorrhage goes up to Jesus to attempt to touch him. Now this woman, we don't know what was wrong. It was, it was definitely a bleeding issue, probably from the womb. We know in Mark's gospel that she had tried many, many doctors and had exhausted her funds, and she was actually in worse condition. We know in Luke's gospel, who is a doc, who was a doctor, he said that it was incurable. 
So you can just imagine, just for a minute, this woman with a bleeding issue has spent all of her money, the indignity of going through all those treatments to no avail. Can you imagine? This lady is desperate. I mean, she is clinging to life. But it's more than just a physical ailment. In um, Leviticus 15, if you have an issue of blood, then you are considered unclean. And you're unclean, and anything you touch is unclean. So play that out in life. She wouldn't be able to touch anybody. If she was married, probably got divorced. Why? Well, you can't have a relationship with your husband if you can never touch him. How about kids, if she had kids? I, I, I don't know. Maybe they would be taken away. Otherwise, the kids would be in this perpetual state of uncleanliness. And when you're unclean, you can't worship God. You can't be with family. You can't have friends. You have to shout unclean every time people come by you. Can you imagine what her life was like? Absolutely desperate. I want you to feel the desperation of being isolated among a people. So she goes up and she thinks, if I just touch his hem, the fringe or the outer edge, it could have been a tassel, we're not sure, but, but she touches it and this power goes through her so the blood clots, the body's healed, and Mark's gospel says she even felt the healing. It's incredible. Can you imagine? I mean, just the power coursing through your bodies. Well, how about next? He's on the way, and these two blind men are chasing after him, shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, it's pretty bold for them to ask for mercy. You know, there is no precedent of a healing of giving sight to the blind. You will find no miracle in the Old Testament of sight being given. But they were calling out. I mean, can you imagine the desperate condition of a blind person in this culture at this time? They had nowhere else to turn. They turned to Jesus Christ, and they called out for healing. Perhaps they knew. Only God gives sight, but God gives the power to the Messiah to give sight. Maybe they knew that. In Isaiah 35, we read this, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Or in Isaiah 42, you hear this dialogue between God the Father and the Messiah. He says this, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nation, to open the eyes that are blind. So maybe he saw Jesus as that Messiah. They were calling him son of David, which would infer that yes, he did. But what Jesus does, he just touches their eyes, and they see. Do you realize this isn't LASIK surgery? This isn't cataract removal. This is giving sight to a dead eye. You know, your eyes, as you're looking at me right now, your eyes are doing millions of operations, computing colors and looking at things and transmitting them to your brain so that what you see is what you understand. It's incredible, the complexity of the eye. Even Darwin admitted that his theory trembled when it comes to the complexity of the eye. And he took a dead eye and just gave life to it just by touching it. And, and then you, you, have this, you have this other story of the demoniac. At the very end, it's almost a throwaway. It's almost like filler. Yeah, and there was a demoniac. They brought it to him. You don't read any words of Jesus. You just find the, the outworking of Jesus' power. It says he could speak. The man couldn't speak. Can you imagine what life would be like? You can't say I love you. You can't say thank you. You can't even give directions to the store. 
You can't say anything. If you have a problem, you're absolutely unable to say anything to anyone. Can you imagine the desperation? And they all go to Jesus, and they're all healed. They're all strengthened. It's the power of Christ. It is incredible when you think about chapters 8 and 9, what Jesus Christ has done. Think about it for a minute. Let's just walk back in chapter 8. He heals the leper. He heals the centurion's servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He calms the sea. He cleanses the demoniac. He raises the paralytic. He raises the dead girl. He heals the woman with a blood issue. He gives sight to two blind men, and then he cleanses another demoniac, all in a span of a number of days. The common thread is these are powerful miracles meant to display his great glory and power. These aren't miracles that you see on the televangelist shows. These are observable. They're undeniable. They're objective. Acts where God's power comes into a state of affairs in nature and changes it. It's God's power. It's not the providence of God. I love the providence of God where God is giving grace on a continual basis, sustaining and encouraging life and moving things. This is different. This is God's power coming in and taking things, and we have no natural way of explaining it. It's that kind of power. That's why they were saying, we've never seen anything like this before. But you know what was real powerful? We, 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 we look at this, and we hope for this. But you and I both know miracles, all these people die. Every miracle that comes, if you have cancer, we pray for you, and you're healed, you still will face death. So, so death the miracles in the space and time are of a temporal nature. But here's what it shows us. That he has power not just to heal the body, but to heal the soul. Look at what he says to the woman. When he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has literally, should be translated, your faith has saved you. He doesn't use the word healing, which is therapeutic. It's a clear Greek word for healing. He uses the word for saving. He says, your faith has saved you, saved you from sin. He says, go in peace. You're now reconciled to God. You're now forgiven. You know, Jesus can heal, but he also saves. Let me draw your mind back to Luke when the ten lepers were healed by Jesus. Jesus healed them. They were healed. They were pure. They were healed, and they went off, excited. How many came back? Just one guy. One guy came back to thank Jesus. But to that one guy, Jesus said, your faith has saved you. The others were healed. This man was healed and saved and delivered from sin and forgiven. See, when you look at the power of these miracles, they're they're to remind you, they're pointers that we can be reconciled to God through faith in Christ, that he has the power to deliver us. You and I don't have the power to deliver ourselves. You know, this can-do attitude? Try today to not sin. Just try for, for one day to not have an angry thought, an evil thought, a lustful thought. And, and just try. Try to make sure every word you speak is upbuilding, correct, true, helpful. Every thought you have, every deed you have, you can't do it. You cannot deliver yourself from this inward kind of Sin-moving attitude. Only Jesus can deliver you. That's the point of all these miracles. Both to deliver us now and all that we're facing, but also to give us a reminder of what's coming. 
Do you realize that these miracles, they're like foretastes for you and I? So if you walk into the house and, and, you, and someone's cooking an apple pie in the oven, you smell it. It catches you. You smell it. Now, you don't, have a, you don't have a plate and a fork right in front of you, but you know it's coming, and you know it's going to be good. All these miracles are reminding us that we're saved now from sin, but there is coming a day when he's going to make all things new. The lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak. All these things are going to be across the board comprehensively distributed to everyone. The struggles and the hardships that we have right now or that we are going to have, all these things are going to be turned around. They're going to be reversed. They're going to be changed. It's the point of these miracles. It's to give us hope now. We are a people with one eye on this life and one eye on the next life. I mean, many of you I know are going through great struggles. Great hardships. I mean, many of you are just looking at life one day at a time because of the. Uh, it can be a host of issues that you're struggling with. Jesus is here to save. Will he deliver us from every single physical ailment that we have? No. That's not the point. But he is here to sustain us, and he will deliver many of us. But he's here to sustain us, to encourage us, to give us hope in this life for the next. But these miracles definitely point to this idea of forgiveness of sins. But it's not just the power of Jesus we see, the power of Jesus to save from sin. We also see the compassion of Jesus. Look at all these objects of mercy. You have the the unimportant here, a child, no less, a a little girl. And of course, children in our day and age uh, are, are highly valued. We make much, much, much of our children. Not so in this day. Uh, They did not make much of their children. Now, I'm sure this man loved his daughter deeply. I don't doubt it. But children, by and large, were not seen as we see them today. They were seen often as a financial and a social drain. So they weren't, until they could begin producing, they were not seen with great value. And yet Jesus is interrupted. He goes. And he goes and he ministers to this girl. You notice how he ministers. He takes her by the hand and says, he says, Talitha, or daughter, or it could almost be translated honey. It's this term of endearment where, where he's approaching this girl and he says, get up. And then he, then he says, feed the child. Get the child some food. I'm sure the parents would have been shocked. They probably wouldn't even have thought to feed the child. But Jesus is so sensitive. He's so compassionate. But not just with the little girl. How about the woman? This woman with a bleeding issue. You know, Again, women were considered second-class citizens. Do not let anybody please tell you that Christianity has caused women to be more subjugated. That is patently false. Women were considered chattel in this day and age. And Christianity, Paul is often, uh, is often called a misogynist, a hater of women because he wanted to subjugate them. And yet when you read like a Galatians 3.28 that there's, no, there's neither male nor female, the Gospels lift up the value of women. In First Peter chapter 3, that women are co-heirs, co-heirs with us. I mean, women are lifted up. Jesus is stooping down to this woman who would have been ignored. I mean, she would have been a modern-day AIDS patient, bleeding, contagious, just filled with uncleanliness from a spiritual point of view. People would have run for her. And Jesus stops and ministers to her. He is on his way to save a girl who's died, and yet he takes a detour and ministers to her. 
In my mind, I was thinking, can you believe what Jairus, the name of the ruler, can you imagine what he was thinking? What are we doing? What are we doing? My daughter's dead, and you're stopping to deal with a woman with a blood issue? But, you know, Jesus doesn't mind being interrupted. He doesn't mind being interrupted by second-class people. I I imagine you love interruptions as well as I love them. And yet I was challenged greatly by this, that Jesus seems to be never rushed. Pressed, yes, pressed by the crowds, but never rushed. He seems to be able to be, to be interrupted by people of little significance. Are you the same way? How easily do you handle being interrupted? How how. How touchable, actually, are you? You know, he he opens his life to these people that he doesn't know. How easily do you draw people close to you in your life? I mean, he seemed to be so concerned about doing the will of God that that interruptions wasn't really part of his vocabulary. I I don't always handle interruptions well. I I have a certain set of tasks I want to do, and, and I see those as divinely given to me by God. And anybody that interrupts those becomes secondary to the purposes of God. Now, I I realize they're not. But that's the way I often struggle. And I was challenged greatly by this, about interruptions. But you see him minister to her, compassionate, sensitive to this woman. He turns to her and says, your faith has saved you. He wanted to make sure she knew it wasn't her, you know, her idea that maybe magic or some superstition that she had. He wants to minister to her. How about the blind men? You know, you, there was a survey done on North Americans that blindness is actually uh, one of the, the top fears that we have over physical illnesses. Interesting, that we're terrified to go blind. So you can imagine the difficulty of life for these people. And yet Jesus takes them. They call out to him and he touches them. Jesus is, do you notice... In the last set of six miracles, it always involved his word. In, in this passage, it always involves his touch. He's always touching people, or he's being touched. Isn't that amazing how, how sometimes we want our personal space? We want to make sure, keep the room, the distance. He's always being touched. Or this, this demoniac, his friends bring him to him. Th- there is no one too insignificant for Jesus. W- when I see the power of Jesus, and now I see the approachability of Jesus, the compassion, the gentleness, you know, is the inclusiveness of his ministry. It's not a select group. Now, when I think about God, I, my mind's often drawn to the transcendence of God. I think about how the heavens declare the glory of God. I think about how, how, how the heavens can't contain him. He is so great. I think about Jesus Christ and him ruling over the nations. I think about Jesus Christ coming back as the son of man in power and glory with a sword coming out of his mouth. I think about those images and I'm encouraged and I'm I'm built up. I don't think often as much of his tenderness and his touch. This idea of the incarnation that God would come among us and be touched by us and that we could touch him, and he could minister to us in our most desperate conditions. Does that not draw you to him? Does it not bid you to want to come to Christ? You know, Jesus wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to be intimate. He wants to be close to us. 
He, he wants to be near our heart and near our lives. I mean, we used that imagery last week of the bridegroom. I mean, the intimacy of a marriage. You know, when you think God seems far off, or God doesn't hear your prayers, or you've done these things, and how can I run to God? I mean, don't you want to run to him when you hear something like this? I mean, even in the midst of your sin, you're fighting, the, you, you want to go and clean yourself up a little bit before you go back. But why? You see him. I mean, the, the, the little girl of no significance to the kingdom, and yet he, he interrupts the schedule to go to her. This woman with a bleeding issue that would have lost all of her friends, he, he stops for her. These two blind men that everybody else just walked around, they wouldn't look at him. Or the man that couldn't speak, he's on his own, nobody cares about him. Jesus does. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to seek him for forgiveness. Well, what would you have done if you had seen all this? Do you notice how the Gospels keep giving us these situations with Jesus, and then the Gospel writers give us the response of people? And I think the intent is so that you would hear this and ask yourself, how would you respond? So Jesus comes and does all these miracles. What would you do? How would you respond? I think you see a bunch of responses here. In number one, you see this response of, of astonishment, right? Never before have we seen this. You'd have to, I mean, the ten miracles in, in Egypt, I mean, out of all the history of God with his people Israel, and Jesus is topping them all with power and glory. Would you have been astonished? They didn't deny any of the miracles. They believed them all. I think they were astonished. I think they may have even said he's from God, like Nicodemus. How can he do these things if he's not from God? That's what Nicodemus said. What would you say? Would you have been astonished? Is astonished saving? In other words, does marveling over the works of Jesus save us? I would say that no. It's not a biblical faith. It, it, it isn't sufficient to just be astonished by Jesus and to be overwhelmed with Jesus. Although I think that's a right response. It's not sufficient. There's no repentance there's no appealing to Jesus. There's no humility. You know, that, that's the, the one thing. I, the longer I stay in ministry, the more uh, I'm convinced that a brokenness and a humility evidences genuine faith, not simply a marveling at him. Gresham Machen was a, uh, a great theologian of the mid-20th century, and uh, he wrote this about the nature of just knowing the bare facts, if you will, of the cross, and even perhaps being in awe of them. He says, the atonement wrought by Christ can never be a, a bare fact. The bare fact is simply the death of a Jew upon a cross in the first century of our era. And that bare fact is entirely without value to anyone. What gives it its value is the explanation of it as a means by which sinful man was brought into the presence of God. It's impossible for us to obtain the slightest benefit from a mere contemplation of the death of Christ. All the benefit comes from our knowledge of the meaning of that death, or in other words, from our own theory of it. In other words, we have to embrace it. These people were astonished, and they went away, and they talked about it. But did they see him as the Messiah? The other group you see in here, of course, the Pharisees, they're angry. 
Again, they don't deny it. Do you notice they don't deny it? What they do is they attribute his power to demons and not to God. They're blaspheming. Matthew doesn't even record what Jesus says. I'm not even going to deal with it. We're going to deal with it in chapter 12. Jesus has a word for them. It's a bold word. It's a stark word. It should cause you to tremble. To attribute Jesus' glory to demons is the height of blasphemy. Well, there's another response we see here. And we see it from these folks who were healed. And it is the approaching of God, approaching of Christ in faith. That's what you see. He is being approached in faith. Now, listen. I say this to the non-Christian and the Christian. Christian here, this is, this is how you became a Christian, or it should be how you became a Christian. And I want to encourage those of you who are a Christian, yes, these I see these marks in my life so that you can be encouraged. Yes, the Spirit of God has done a work in me. For the non-Christian here, this is really telling us how you become a Christian. It really explains to us. How do we move from the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of self to the kingdom of Christ? And, and so I've shown you kind of a, an astonishment over Jesus, which is not true biblical faith. I've shown you an anger over Jesus, which of course is not a biblical faith. And now I want to show you what saving faith is. This is a response to the power and the compassion of Jesus. And, and saving faith begins with this, desperation, absolute weakness, a willing embrace of your inability to appeal to God and to appear before God and to earn God's favor. There's a desperation here. You see the desperation played out in their lives. So Jairus kneels before Jesus and begs him to come heal his daughter. Now Jairus was a ruler. He probably was a Pharisee. Now you know the Pharisees are starting to grow angrier and angrier over Jesus. And so for him as a Pharisee, among his peers of Pharisees, to kneel at the foot of a man and beg him to save his daughter. He's taken his reputation. He's taken everything he has. He's lost his job. He's going to be ostracized from the community. He doesn't care. Why? Because he's so desperate to have his daughter saved. He knows that only Jesus can do it, and he's willing to cast everything to the side, recognizing I am absolutely without hope outside of Jesus Christ. There's a desperation there. You see the desperation of the woman. I mean, the woman, it says, was pressing through the crowd. I mean, she is unclean. And at this point, she doesn't care who she gets unclean. She needs to get to Jesus. It's the only hope she has. She's gone through all her money. She has no friends. She is absolutely desperate. She is a poster child for neediness. And then you look at the blind men, the same thing, or the demoniac. Then consider being oppressed by demons that you cannot even speak. I mean, they're without hope. They're desperate. Salvation begins when we understand we don't have the ability to be reconciled to God apart from this Messiah who was sent to save us. There's a weakness, a desperation. That's why Jesus, remember when he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the first beatitude he gives is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who are desperate. Blessed are those, you know, because when you're desperate, it crystallizes your understanding of God. When you get the news that you now have terminal cancer, there is a synthesizing, there is a removal of distractions that it is now, everything becomes sharper. Much harder to distract you. 
you're thinking about one thing, life, death. That's all you have on your mind. There's a desperation. That's the whole idea of a foxhole conversion. This idea that, that everything around you is meaningless now. You're about to die, and that's when you turn to God. Foxhole conversions aren't bad. They aren't. They're at a point of desperation. Now, if they turn later once the bombs stop falling, then it's not a real conversion. But, but, but the desperation. And so many of us, we fight for the can-do attitude. I have many people just dot, they want to be self-sufficient. They don't want to be beholden to people. They don't want to need anyone. They don't want to need anything. And I see in them this refusal to ever be desperate, to ever be saved. You know, 82% of Americans in a survey agreed with Benjamin Franklin's famous line, God helps those who help themselves. You've got to do it. You've got to pull your weight. You've got to have the attitude. And yet that doesn't seem to work here. And so if you, you know, I'd repent of your pride. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Repent of your need to always do it on your own. Embrace this brokenness and weakness. We sang it last week. In the song, Come Ye Sinners. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. This is who Jesus is calling. Weak and wounded. Jesus ready, stands to save you. Full of pity, love, and power. Let not conscience make you linger. Not of fitness, fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So your power, your position, and your prestige, they will do you no good in this kingdom. They will not put you in better stead in this kingdom. It is desperation. It is humility. Do you feel that humility? Have you come to the place? Do you feel that without Christ you are nothing? Do you understand fully there is no approaching God outside Christ? That God has sent Jesus to be the Messiah. And if you don't see your absolute inability to come to him, you will never see him. It's a scary thought to say that to you. I feel like I, I feel like I want to be always want to be Mr. Greatheart for you. Mr. Greatheart was a character in Pilgrim's Progress. He comes along to Christian and he's just encouraging him to finish well. He's encouraging him as he goes to the end, preaching to him, encouraging him with the greatness of God, reminding him of these truths so that he may finish the race well. That's what I do just encouraging you to finish well but it begins with you understanding your absolute humility to 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 cast aside the need to be self-sufficient and to cast aside the need to always have everything together and to have it all right and all tight and you're a you're a man or a woman that don't that doesn't need anything i'm self-sufficient that's none of the characters that were touched by the power of jesus were that way they're all needy and desperate. But secondly, you notice that saving faith is rarely perfect. I mean, you look at these characters. They were saved, and yet their faith was far from perfect. It was mixed. Look at Jairus. Jairus thinks that Jesus has to go to the child. He should have listened to the centurion. The centurion said, you don't need to come. Just say a word. He'll be healed. Jairus didn't know. He said, no, you better touch her. You've got to touch her. So his faith was was immature, or the woman. The woman just wanted to touch the hem, and she didn't even want to be known. Why? Probably superstitious. She probably thought in some magical way that the clothes have the power of the man who wears the clothes. That's what Charles Spurgeon said about her. He says this, her faith lived despite her ignorance. I mean, how many? who comes with a full understanding of the atonement? 
Who comes understanding the relationship perfectly between divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Faith and works, the, the union of Christ being fully God and fully man. Isn't it merciful of God? I mean, doesn't it draw you to Christ that we don't have to get it all cleaned up, theologically speaking, to come to him? That he takes us imperfect and he takes us weak and confused? I mean, so many of our, so many of our theologies are just a, a hodgepodge of contradictory issues. And yet we're desperate for him, and he saves us. He saves us despite our ignorance. Isn't that kind of him? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that, I mean, when you see Christ, don't you just want to see him and thank him for being so gentle and kind with us? Just amazing to me. We're going through the Gospels. So kind. So faith, saving faith, begins in desperation. It begins also imperfect, but it must land in Jesus. You must drive a stake in Jesus. It has to be there. There is no other hope for us outside of Christ. And, and you see that with Jairus. He kneels before Jesus. He's going to no one else. You see it with the woman. In fact, it's interesting. In Greek, the tense of the verb means that she kept saying to herself, if I can only touch him, if I can only touch him, if I can only touch him. And she's pushing herself through the crowd. That's why Augustine said, flesh, flesh presses, faith touches. She just wanted to touch him. Just touch him. You see the same thing with the blind men, the same tense. The blind men were shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They didn't say it once. They didn't say it twice. They could have said it 50 times. Like a noisy gong behind them, they were not going to let him go. They were going to keep shouting it out until he turned and healed them. Faith presses against Jesus and pushes and touches him. See, the demoniac with the friends bringing them, they knew who to bring him to. They'd already heard about the, the cleansing of the demoniacs across the lake. There has to be that pressing towards Jesus and the touching of him. You can't simply think nice thoughts about Jesus. The idea of him, a teacher, a moralist, a philanthropist, a philosopher, a good prophet among many, none of those work. He is the unique son of God that we just sang about, and only he and he alone can save. Gresham Machen later in his book, what is faith says this, acceptance of the Lord Jesus as he is offered to us in the gospel of his redeeming work is saving faith. Despairing of any salvation to be obtained by our own efforts, we simply trust in him to save us. We say no longer as we contemplate the cross, merely he saved others or he saved the world or he saved the church. We say, every one of us, by the strange individualizing power of faith, he loved me and gave himself for me. When a man once says that in his heart, and not merely with his lips, then no matter what guilt he may be, he may have, no matter how far he is beyond any human pale, no matter how little opportunity he has for making good the evil that he has done, he is a ransomed soul and a child of God forever. To touch Christ by faith, to believe that he alone is our Savior. This is, this is what he's getting at here. Now, for the Christian here, my, my prayer for you has been that you love Christ more. You're drawn to him. You appeal to him. You, you, you find it to be more significant that, that you, you would see in your life, yes, I was desperate. Yes, I saw my absolute need for him. It was an imperfect faith, but it's pressing on. And for the non-Christian here, there is no other approach to God other than through Christ. Jesus himself said that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you have questions, if you're not a Christian and you have questions, I'd 
invite you after the service to come forward, or as I do because of the confidence I have in so many of you and your understanding of Christ, just talk to somebody next to you about it. I mean, it is an issue. I mean, we are caught up, in, and we are in, our, our world is in a very interesting place right now. And we all know the, the issues in the Middle East and the issues with Ukraine and Russia and all these different issues, and they're all significant. And they need to be discussed and considered and handled well. But let me tell you, this here, th these issues that we're dealing with right now, they have always existed in some measure. I, I admit that it seems in greater measure now the last generation, but they've always existed. Have you noticed that? Nations have always invaded nations. There's always been murder and abuse. and th There's always been these things. There's always been ethnic hatred. There has been from the beginning. This is a life and death issue. I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it. It is a life and de death issue for us. So I would ask you to take it with deep, serious seriousness. I, I'd like to pray, and then um, uh, we have a, just a few minutes to pray, and uh, an elder is going to close us. And I would ask you to respond corporately to the word. Pray, pray briefly and th th that others may pray, and, uh, and pray boldly. Let's pray boldly because of the bold power of our Savior. Father, I do thank you and praise you for uh, giving to us your Son that you did not spare him. You gave him up for us all. Father, thank you for graciously doing this. Cause our affections to swell for him that we might live for the glory of his name. 